Time for This Week in Chicago History, sponsored by UChicagoMedicine.org. Anna DeVlantis joining us. I'm so glad you're going to mention this guy right off the bat here uh, today, Anna, because this 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 separates uh, real longtime Chicagoans from uh, the Johnny-come-latelys, because I've mentioned him, and people give me a, a blank stare. But, uh, but <laughs> there was like, a time everybody knew his name around here. It's totally true. It's like, it's like a Chicago history question, you know, like almost should be on the list, prove you're a Chicagoan, Bob, and I appreciate your attention to this particular detail. It's such a good story. Everyone should know about him. Lar Daly was his name, and he actually was responsible, as you know, a perennial political candidate for changing the federal election laws. His real name, Lawrence Joseph Sarsfield Daly, went by Lar Daly because he thought uh, that Lar would actually help him get the Swedish vote. I guess that was big at the time, back in the 30s when he first started running. Daly wasn't a big name yet in politics, so that didn't help. But as you know, Bobby ran for ward committee man. He ran, ran for superintendent of schools, U.S. Senate. He ran for governor, mayor several times. He ran for Congress. I mean, you name it, state legislature. Over 30 different times he ran for office. Never won, never came close. Um, and it's actually what he did this week in uh, back in 1959 was a federal lawsuit that that changed the uh, FCC's rules on equal time because he was kind of a gimmicky politician. You know, he dressed in an Uncle Sam suit. And no one really took him seriously, but he was always running. And so he was actually filing suit to say that he deserved equal time. So anytime a real major candidate of substance was up there, he ha- he the TV station or radio station had to give Lar Daly equal time. Well, when he decided to be a write-in candidate for president, the equal time laws were a problem because, you know, he technically could have qualified to be on the stage with Kennedy and Nixon under those <laughs> rules, which would have changed history dramatically. <laughs> that <was> um, wild. <laughs> can you imagine? And there's Lar Daly, this guy over here. But that didn't happen because they rewrote the election laws to just make them a, a little stricter. Lar Daly was not polling at any number at all. He was often coming in at one or two percent of the vote. Uh, I think the most he ever got was 15 percent in some small local race. But um, he also came this close, true story, Bob, uh, to being on the Tonight Show with hmm. Jack Parr for the same reason, because he had already interviewed Kennedy. And so Lar Daly said he filed a suit that went all the way up to a federal court of appeals. Originally, he won, uh, then lost on appeal that he would have been on The Tonight Show <laughs> because of the equal time rules. But again, FCC tightened those up a little bit. So things mm-hmm. changed. Lar America First Daily, I believe he was known as. Uh, this was a big week in Chicago for Phil Donahue back in 78, wasn't it? You know, launched a whole new concept, Bob. You think about it in television, um, right over at WGN TV studios. Uh, the concept of audience participation on talk shows was not yet being done. Um, And he introduced it. He he was great at it. It was almost by accident because he loved interacting with the guests. And when they said something or reacted, he wanted to run over there and bring the microphone in front of their face. And it really worked. It was his style. um, And it was, you know, duplicated many times since, of course, it became kind of the format. But, you know, interesting, too, because he always said that the audience members would ask the question on everyone's mind that he sometimes didn't think to ask. But also they could be much more judgmental or they could be even more, um, they could get into conflict sometimes with the guests he had featured. We pulled a clip of a show with Boy George when he was a huge, huge um, star um, with Culture Club, Boy George. And they listen to the audience here in 1984 as they talk, they ask questions with 
Boy George, who's, of course, dressed flamboyantly and very feminine, and that was his style. This is uh, what the audience had to say to him. Uh, hello. What inspired you to dress the way you do? Um, not that question again. <laughs> well, I suppose the boredom of everyday life, you know. And I think everybody else looks dull in comparison to me, so that's the reason, really. Everybody else looks dull in comparison to you. I think so, yeah, don't you? Yes! <laughs> How does it feel to be like driving or sitting in your house and hear your voice on the radio after like all your years of trying to do it. I mean, does it feel real strange to hear yourself? It's strange because like after selling like 10 million albums and numerous amounts of singles, people still ask you why you look this way, blah, blah, blah. That's the most important issue to me. You know, we sell loads of records and people are still asking, is it a gimmick? You know, why do you do it? You know, psychoanalyzing me. So that's, you know, I don't think about my voice being on the radio because it's my job, you know. Of course I enjoy it, you know, that's the whole reason of doing it. Yes. I just want to say I think you're great. Yeah! <laughs> I feel like saying, is the caller there? <laughs> remember that? Right, right. Oh, remember? Caller, are you on the line? Go ahead, caller. <laughs> yeah. um, he was he was a master at all that. Um, well, the Phil Donahue show, too, I, I'm, I've been told from many people at WGN-TV that there, because his slot was right before the Bozo show, there were some interesting interactions in the hallways before and after the show's boxes. Just some fun stuff going on there. This week in 1985 in Chicago, there was a Michael Jordan shoe controversy. Hannah, tell us about this. So NBA Commissioner David Stern had his top attorneys in 1985 send a very harsh letter to Nike, a cease and desist letter, if you will, Bob, about Michael Jordan violating the league's shoe policy. And quoting from the letter we pulled here on NBA letterhead sent to Nike's Beaverton, Oregon headquarters, Quote, certain black and red Nike shoes worn by Michael Jordan violate the rules and procedures of the National Basketball Association. In other words, Nike, stop doing it. Stop (laughs) making uh, Michael Jordan wear these shoes. Um, At the time, you know, as you know, the league required players shoes to abide by the 51 percent rules. So they needed to be 51 percent white and also fall in accordance with the rest of the team. You know, there are all kinds of rules. But uh, the marketing genius of Nike, and if you've seen that movie Air with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, it's Mm -hmm. It's just so well, you know, laid out in the movie. Yeah. They were just genius. They were the genius at it. And the, the league was, of course, fining players thousands of dollars. So they didn't want to do it. And Nike said, well, we'll pay for any fines for any player who's wearing Nikes. And not only that, but they started running ads about the illegal Nikes. And it made them just so much more in demand at the time. They started selling for 65 bucks. And at that time, 1984, I mean, this is that was a crazy number for, for you know, sneakers. Um, Here's one of the ads, Bob, we pulled for you, and I think you'll like this. Um, The camera is panning from Michael Jordan's head down to his toes, which were, of course, covered by banned Nikes. Here's the ad. On September 15th, Nike created a revolutionary new basketball shoe. On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them. Air Jordans from Nike. <laughs> and that letter you mentioned, uh, Nike still has that letter from the NBA, yes! don't they? They still have it framed at their headquarters, uh, very proudly so. And you think about what a turning point that was, you know, for them, for Nike and the brand and the relationship with Michael Jordan that's you know, continued over time and made them all billions of dollars each. So very, mm-hmm. very uh, 
happy memories that that particular letter. We mentioned Phil Donahue uh, premiering in Chicago a couple minutes ago, but uh, Oprah uh, had a big day this week in 1989, and of course, uh, by then she had surpassed uh, Donahue in the ratings, hadn't she? She was in 1989. She was uh, she was ahead. In fact, the first month on the air, she was able to beat him the first time. Um, she always said, though, very um, graciously that there would have been no Oprah Winfrey without Phil Donahue. So important to notice that. But she was a superstar by this point in time, as you know, Bob. And, and she opened a move a, a, a restaurant, excuse me, called The Eccentric. Did you ever go to The Eccentric? Yes, I remember. I may have gone uh, opening night, I think. <laughs> It was a Rich Melman. She teamed up with legendary, legendary restaurateur Rich Melman to create this restaurant. 159 West Erie was the location, and the local reviews said it was kind of known for the side dishes and the comfort food, namely Oprah's mashed potatoes. And uh, she's just, you know, she was really into it. You, you think about it. Um, at the time, the Tribune wrote that uh, people were just couldn't get enough of her potatoes. And Oprah gave an interview to the Tribune when the restaurant opened to say she wasn't going to be one of those celebrities that attached her name to a restaurant name alone. She was going to be very involved. And she said she likes to check the bathrooms every half hour to make sure they're clean. She hmm. goes in the kitchen and tastes the mashed potatoes and the other food items to make sure everything's you know, up to par. And uh, she said the only thing she wouldn't do was work the phones because she felt that she wasn't able to give people accurate directions to the place in the location where it was. But kind of interesting to think, how did she ever have time for any of that while she was doing her talk show? And, and you know, I don't know how long that lasted, Bob, but she was determined to be part of it. The restaurant itself lasted six years and then turned into Wildfire, which was mm-hmm. also a very, very popular restaurant. I don't, I don't think years. Oprah ever got around to spending too much time in there cleaning the restrooms <laughs> and uh, doing all of that. <laughs> Finally, uh, this is no. a bit of Chicago candy history. And I, I think this uh, this particular candy uh, was very good for the uh, for the dentists in chicago <laughs> that's my only complaint with the milk duds bob is that they stick to your teeth right even as a kid you're like oh, they're great mm-hmm. but you gotta you gotta work them out of your mouth it's just you know the milk duds taste great but yet another chicago candy creation we have so many um that were destined for greatness at the time it was the hoffman candy company 1928 that created these and we're trying to make them into perfectly shaped spheres so that they would do these great little you know great little candies and they just couldn't get the shape right they kept missing the mark and so they named them duds they're like these are duds we can't get it right and that name stuck and they became known as milk duds so you're right it's like uh you think about america's favorite candies you go back and think one out of four of them at the time in 19 by the 1980s was being produced in chicago we pulled an ad for milk duds here real quickly and it's uh, it's super cute oh what are they those milk duds i know for sure i left them right around here somewhere Where's my milk duds? Those bite-sized nuggets of delicious, chewy caramel, completely surrounded with a scrumptious chocolatey coating. Milk duds are nutritious, too. They're rich with milk. Milk duds are everyone's favorite, so be sure to have enough on hand. Milk duds come in pocket size, king size, the 15-cent size, family size. Get milk duds today. They're chocolatey, caramelly, and rich with milk. Born in Chicago this week in 1928. Uh, they used to give them out uh, when you were in line at Lou Mitchell's. And, of course, a lot of people oh, yeah. uh, go for them in the, in the movies now, don't they? Love them. But nu- they're nutritious, Bob. Keep that in mind when you're oh, really? picking them out of your teeth, okay? <laughs> I'll tell uh, Marianne you said so. Thanks, Santa. <laughs> Talk to you next Wednesday. See you, Bob.